It was absolutely amazing. We had so many amazing conversations, so many uh, prayers prayed, so many prayers answered. Uh, We saw just so many people show up, and it was a blessing to be able to be salt and light to our community yesterday. For those of you who volunteered at that event, over 100-plus volunteers, thank you guys so much for being part of that. Way to go, way to go, way to go. I know for sure right now there are kids in kids ministry who were at that event yesterday who had never attended our church before, and so that is something worth celebrating as well. So way to go, God. Last thing that I, I, well, two things. I got two things I want to talk to you, things that are coming up that I want to make sure we're all aware of and on point on. Uh, First thing is an opportunity to truly understand how better it is to give than to get. Um, Our partners at the Helping in His Name Food Pantry, which is a local food pantry who we support as a church, uh, they need our help this Thanksgiving kind of holiday season. And so what I'm inviting you to do, and this is a one-week thing, so don't just go like, I'll get to that when I get to that. Go this week, just go ahead and go today, go figure out some way to go and get some dry goods. Those are basically anything that's not like a bag of salmon, okay? So like get stuff that can sit on a shelf, the stuff that you would put in your pantry, go get that kind of stuff and bring that in. We're going to collect those donations, not for four Sundays straight. We're going to connect those next Sunday, all right? So I need you to go get those this week. Add that to your list. If you're a parent in a room, this is a great opportunity. Let your kids get in with this. Hey, what should we go get? You know, let them go figure out and help them be a part of that. Help them understand why you're doing that. Great opportunity to help them understand that lesson that you're learning as well. Go do that this week. And then next Sunday, bring those back in. We're going to collect those out there in that lobby. Now, if you miss that Sunday, you're like, oh, I'll just bring it by the church and just leave it out there. Do not do that. All right. We are not Uber Eats for your donation. Take your donation to Helping in His Name Food Pantry if you miss bringing it this past or this coming Sunday. Next thing I want to talk to you about, and this is for members of MCC, is our annual family meeting. That is coming up November 12th. November 12th is when that's going to be. That's in the evening. That's a Sunday. It's going to be a Sunday evening, 530 to who knows how long. Uh, We're going to have an awesome time gathering together, talking about what God has been doing over the course of this last year. Another thing that happens at those is that's where we, as the current elders, present to you the elders who may be coming on. That's where you have the opportunity to vote for that. A thing that's going to happen at this coming family meeting that is going to be unique that I'm really looking forward to sharing is what is coming with this um, Jodico Road, Mount Olive Road transition and purchase and all the things that are happening out there and how that's going to affect what's going to happen at our church. And so if you're like, what in the world? Like, I don't know anything you're talking about. Well, you should probably come to the thing. Uh, But those of you who are unaware, uh, there's been a big giant project with the DOT. There's going to be a a light out there at the road. There's going to be all sorts of stuff coming. And we've been navigating with DOT for what feels like a decade uh, to be able to come to a conclusion on this project. We finally are getting to what I think is a conclusion, and it's going to affect some of what coming into our church parking lot and going out of our church parking lot is going to look like in 2024. None of this is going to be happening within the next few months, but all of that is going to be happening probably next year. Again, we're talking about the government here, so who knows when it could happen. So I want you to be aware of when it does happen, though. Sound good? So uh, child care is available for that. If you're here and you're like, man, I want to be a part of that, but I'm not a member of MCC, fill out that Connect card in the chair back at chair back pocket in front of you and mark that you're interested in becoming a member and I promise I can get you membership before this date all right you're gonna have to work with me though all right we can make it happen sound good grab your bible go to Hebrews chapter 11 Hebrews chapter 11 as you're turning there let me just give you a 
rundown on my week as far as how to tackle this text and how I've prayed through and processed through this. Um, I am fully aware that there are some catastrophic things that are happening in our world. There are things that are causing a lot of nerves, especially in regards to what's happening in Israel and the Gaza Strip and the war between Israel and Palestine. And it is no coincidence that where we are going today in Scripture, really where we started last week and where we're for sure going today, is in direct correlation. The, the root behind what is happening in Israel at this very moment and the war that is going on is directly connected to the passage of Scripture that we're going to get ready to dive into today. And the promise that was given to one man, that one piece of land and one lineage and the Lord himself would come through. And so today we're going to dive into and tackle that. And it is no coincidence. I plan our preaching calendar out year in advance. That it just so happens that these are the exact things that the people of God are hearing from the word of God. Because our God knows what he's doing. Now I've been trying to figure out, well, how do you tackle that? Like all these world events and biblical prophecy and history and all these other types of things while also still doing justice to what we're going through in Hebrews and at the same time, not just turning this to like a teaching, but also being at a place where we can present the gospel. And so I've kind of got like three goals today. My goal is to show you the still truth that's there in the passage in Hebrews. My goal is to kind of walk you through some of the history so that you understand how all of what's happening right now kind of got there. So we walk through and understand the biblical narrative that you're a part of right now. And then I want to help hopefully be able to walk you through, okay, now that maybe I've got a better understanding of what's going on, where that came from, how that originated, now that I even understand that I'm a part of this ongoing story, if I'm God's people in Christ, what in the world do I do? And as I did research all this week, that's kind of what I kept bumping into. I, I, I would hear this sermon or do this research, and I would come into things, and I would hear so many people talk about and explain with great eloquence what was going on and that, how that connected to just all these little details in scripture and everything else. And then, you know, guys go on a, a 45 minute tangent on biblical prophecy and how that country equals that country and that country equals that country. And, and, and some of that very well may be true, but I had to pray and process through, God, what do you want me to do with my time today? And the overwhelming thing that I feel like he has laid on my spirit is make sure you help my people understand that if this is true, here's what we need to do. It would be a great failure in any gospel presentation, in any great sermon, if you just left with a massive head full of knowledge, but not an encouragement and an exhortation and even instruction to go out and live your life any differently. If we have really learned the truths of our God, they are so heavy, they are so weighty, they are so impactful that they should actually change how we live. And part of my call is to help us walk into that. So that's my big crazy goal today. So let me pray because I need a lot of the Holy Spirit's help. Father, we love you and we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you for your word. And as hard as it may be sometimes, we thank you for your world and what's even happening in it right now and how it can bring us a revelation of who you are and what you're doing. Father, help us understand that through scripture, we do have written down the recorded history of the people of God, but help us understand that right now you are still writing the story of the people of God, and we are a part of that if we are in Christ. Help us to understand that what is happening in Scripture, what has happened there, what is happening in our world right now, we are a part of. We are living in Bible prophecy being fulfilled as we 
speak. And I pray that your church is found fervent, is found faithful, is not negligent, but pays attention, studies, and responds accordingly to the great king of the universe, who we also get to call Abba, Father. And it's in that Father's name we pray. Amen. All right. Got a Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read it to you and then we'll start picking it apart. Jump on down to verse 17. We'll probably get to maybe 19 today. And then a lot of history and we'll go from there. Hopefully you're already there. Told you to go there a long time ago, guys. Hebrews 11:17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. Man, that whole um, only son, offering him up, that super sounds familiar. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Heard that somewhere else too. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So this is our passage. We've got this guy, Abraham. And remember, the whole thing of chapter 11 has been the pastor to the church in Hebrews trying to help the people understand that we are going to look back at these heroes of our faith, be able to see what they did and how our faith should persevere, how our faith should hold tight, and how we can learn from what their faith was pointing towards to see the full completion in our true hero in faith, Jesus, and how everything that happened in their story ultimately pointed to Jesus. And that's this passage that we're going to dive into today. So let's go through kind of piece by piece. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. Everybody say tested. Tested. We don't like that word. We don't want to be tested, but Abraham got tested. He, when tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So kind of picture what's going on here, what he's trying to get the people to see. is saying, Abraham got this promise that he would have this child, Isaac, and this would be the son through which he would bless many nations. A great lineage would come through Abraham, through his son, through his seed, Isaac. And it's talking about here, he was in the act of offering up his only son. So I don't know, picture Abraham with a knife in his hand. And I, I see, you know, Isaac, you know, on the altar there, and he's got his knife up and... I don't know how long he had to wait before God was like, Abe, Abraham, like, oh God, like, where are you at? <laughs> like, I don't know how long that had to happen, but eventually God goes, hey, stop. I will provide the sacrifice. And all this, again, is foreshadowing what's to come in Jesus, and we're going to get more into that as we come. But God gives him this test, and this son, this promise, was of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, what we know here, we're like, well, who was Isaac and who was the offspring? Well, we know Isaac had a child. Isaac had a child named Jacob. Jacob's name later got changed to Israel. That is the lineage. That is the people. Israel, also known as Israelites, also known as Jews, also known as Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is where all this is going back to. Verse 19. He considered, that's Abraham, he considered that God was able 
to even raise him, that's Isaac, from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, this is, this is awesome. I, I, for many years, have come to the story of Abraham and Isaac and this, this unique thing of, of God inviting him, testing him in this story and gone, you know, what, what is, why would God do that? What, what's God trying to show him here? Uh, part of this is, remember, Abraham, when he gets to this place where he is invited by God, tested by God to sacrifice his son, before God ever calls Abraham, Abraham is not the model follower of God. He is polytheistic, which means he worships a multitude of gods. Yahweh may have been one of them, but Abraham is not a singular follower, monotheism, of the God Yahweh. When God calls him out into his new promise, he calls him to abandon all other gods and follow Yahweh's plan. And as he goes into and as he goes through this, God says, I'm going to test your faith. Part of that testing was showing Abraham that I am not like the other gods you used to serve. Now, these other gods, the Canaanite gods, all these other gods of all these other people, part of their way that they would be pleased as these false gods is there would be child sacrifice. And so Abraham, I think in a sense, is probably going, man, I thought this God was different, but here we go, here we go again. And he gets him up to the mountain. He's getting ready to do this. But what I love about what Hebrews makes us aware of is Abraham understands two things. One, he understands that God is going to provide a sacrifice, that even if he does all of these things, that God is going to provide, which is kind of shown, and we'll get there and read it a little bit later, when they're going up the mountain. And don't picture like me with my six-year-old son going up a mountain to sacrifice him. At this point in time, Isaac, his son, is you know, over 18 plus, and Abraham is, is in his mid to late 80s as this is happening. So if Isaac really wants to, they're going up the hill and he can just sweep the leg. And he's like, I'm not going to get sacrificed today, Dad. Sorry, you know, we'll call it an accident. He could totally have done all that. But in partnership with his father's promise, they both go up the mountain. And there's this unique moment where Isaac turns to his father and goes, Dad, where is the sacrifice And, and Abraham simply says, the Lord will provide. He didn't say, you. <laughs> and that would, Isaac would have probably ran. He just said, the Lord will provide. And we know how the story goes. From there, God does provide. He has a ram caught in the thicket. An angel intercedes and all this happens. But what I love that the passage in Hebrews gives us a window into is it wasn't just that Abraham thought that God will send a substitutionary sacrifice. And again, all that's foreshadowing Jesus. But what the author of Hebrews shows us is that Abraham somehow believed in the resurrection. Now, what's crazy up until this point, this is stories all in Genesis chapter, you know, in the 12 to 20, this is where Abraham's story is at. But what's wild, up until this point, where God asks and invites and tests Abraham, how many people have resurrected from the dead at this point in Genesis? None. But the pastor to the church in Hebrews is helping us understand that even by faith, Abraham knew, even if he did go through with the sacrifice of his son, that God was going to hold true to his promise, and that son would be resurrected, which is crazy. Put these two pieces together. Abraham both had faith in Good Friday through Isaac, and he had faith in Easter for Isaac. 
that either he will be sacrificed as a substitutionary sacrifice that will be the one who comes through this promise, or even if I go through with it, even if he does die, he will resurrect again. And all of that, this is what Hebrews is awesome because it's showing us, all of that was pointing to what was to come in Jesus, that yes, there would be death, but even if there was death, there would be resurrection. And what's crazy is that is what happened, not with Abraham's son, that's what happened with God's son. He did go up the mountain. He did put the wood on his back. He did take it all the way to the place of death. He did die as a substitutionary sacrifice. And Abraham didn't just have to have faith to go, hey, if he dies, maybe he could be resurrected. Jesus literally did die and was actually on the third day resurrected. It's God showing that what man can't do, God is willing to do. It's an awesome story. So one of the things that just kind of a side note in here that we can hear in the story and go like, man, it's crazy. Like, hope God doesn't ask me to do any of that to my kids because I don't have to pay for counseling for the next 20 years of their life. God does test Abraham. And in your life, God's gonna test you too. And here's what you need to understand. A faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that can't be trusted. Know this, God knows whether you're gonna pass or fail whatever test you're in right now or whatever test you've gone through. The good teachers know that. They know whether or not you're gonna pass or fail. The test is not for the teacher. The test is for the student so that you see, oh, now I have real faith. God has gifted me with this real faith. I was able to move forward in this and process through this. Now, what I wanna do for the remainder of our time is begin to walk you through this test and how God met Abraham, walked him over and over again through this promise and continued to test his faith as he was going through this, give you the history and hopefully as we navigate and dive into this history, you'll begin to even see how this is the origin story of the war that's happening right now and where it all began and where it all started. So if you've got a Bible, go to the book of Genesis. It's where we're gonna start. I'm gonna read a lot of scripture. I'm not gonna have it on the screen. Please follow along with me. Bible, underline stuff, pay attention to stuff. Start in Genesis chapter 12. One of my favorite sounds on planet Earth right now. Pages turning in Bibles in a room full of people. Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring the men of God who wrote this word and as we come to it now, speak to us. Hebrews 12, chapter one. This is the beginning of this promise between God and Abraham. Maybe even deeper than the promise, a covenant. We leaned into this last week. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, underline land, that's important. Land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation have a nation you have to have a lineage you have to have people and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and you all 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 the families of the earth shall be blessed all right so God shows up to this guy gives him this big crazy promise um, Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldeans where his whole family lives and he begins to wander in the wilderness heads towards this place called Canaan Galilee which is this promised land that God has given him that he and his people would inherit and have as their piece of property their place of promise all right now a lot happens between then and there now go to verse 10 same chapter verse 10 
So Abraham leaves. He gets going. He gets over to this place. But remember, this land that was Canaan was already inhabited by a group of people. So Abraham just kind of got his ragtag little tribe now that he's got rocking and rolling through the desert. He is not able to go into this land. It's already set up. People already have it. So Abraham and his family, they're kind of camping out in tents on the outskirts of this area, which takes us to verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land where Abraham currently was, so Abraham went down to Egypt, underline Egypt, to sojourn there, for a famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, this is, this is where the story gets really crazy and some Jerry Springer stuff starts happening. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And remember, they're both aged at this time, so that was really kind of him to say that, but it gets worse. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, verse 12, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that, you, that it may go well with me because of you, and let my life be spared for your sake. So when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, which again, apparently older, you know, she's got it going on. They see her, they're like, yeah. In verse 15, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. They were bragging about Sarai. The woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. This is where it gets wicked and evil where women are taken advantage of. And you remember when we got into Noah, what was God furious about what was happening on earth? The primary thing that is cited in Genesis 8 is women being used for men's advantage. Here it happens again, and it's not just Pharaoh. It's his chosen guy, Abram. Verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. This is the prince coming in and going, hey, man, uh, let's make a deal. I like her. I want to give you some stuff. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, they dealt with Abram. They dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkey, male servants, female servants, and female donkeys. So what it looks like here is there's a trade that's made. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So, I mean, you're Pharaoh. You're like, cool, I just got this new woman to come, and she's going to be my new side thing. And he's getting ready. He's got the candles on and everything else. And then his body just breaks out in plagues. And it's all there. And he realizes, like, the gods are against me taking advantage of this woman for sure. In verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and with all he had. So don't miss this. It's easy to overlook this in the text. Earlier in the passage, there's a trade that's made. Abraham offers up his sister, Sarai, and he gets boatload of livestock and included in that. What does he also get? Male servants and female servants. It's critical to understand that. Now, a plague happens, 
And Pharaoh is like, I need, here's my receipt. I'm exchanging this woman. I'm giving you this back. But instead of like when you buy something from Target and you try to exchange it, you try to get your money back. Pharaoh's just like, get out of here. And the passage tells us that Abraham leaves with his wives and he leaves with the things that he had garnered in the trade from the king of Egypt. It's important. Let's keep going. Go all the way to chapter 15. We're going to come back to, we're going to, come back to 12, 12, 10 in a second. Put a finger there. God shows up here in chapter 15 and makes the, what I would consider the big deal of big deal covenant promises with Abram. Again, he's already given his word. Now he's going to show him a blood path covenant. 15 is a unique chapter. Let's lean in. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. This is Abraham getting a little bit pouty with God and going, listen, I keep hearing you say, God, that you're going to bless me and there's going to be nations and tribes and I'm going to have this great lineage and everything else. But if you haven't noticed, right now, if I were to die, I'm passing everything down to the gardener. All right? Things are not what you're saying, God. What you're saying and what you're showing are different. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. God's told you one thing. This is the plan. You feel it in your heart. You feel like he's made that very clear. And then you look around and you go, it ain't happening. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And there in my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and remember my household will be an heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So God answers him back. This man shall not be your heir. Your, listen, this is key. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. Anytime God says, let's go outside, you're like, it's about to get bumpy. Um, let's go outside. Look towards heaven. This is at night. Number the stars. He takes him out there, trying to prove a point. Start counting. See how many you can get to. I'll wait. <laughs> and he says, if you're able to number them, and then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, this is where it gets interesting. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, that's where Abraham used to live, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? This is how we are with God. and Nothing has changed from eons and eons ago. God tells us something and we go, well, how do I know? Prove it. Show me. How am I going to know this? So here's how God does this. This is crazy. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a male goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. You're like, what is God doing here? It's going to get crazier. And he brought in all of these and cut them in half. Not this way half, this way half. Imagine sawing through a cow that way. I mean, this is bloody, disgusting, just blood everywhere. I don't know how else to describe it to you. All right? Pick back up in verse 10. And he brought these all in, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Thank you. How nice. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, 
a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. He's prophesying here. He's basically letting him know in this moment that it ain't going to happen by the end of the day, Abram. So you better develop some patience. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go into your fathers, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is crazy. This is, this, is, this is where this covenant gets solidified and set in stone for eternity. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is the two animals, okay? So what passed between the animals? A smoking fire pot and a fire torch. Smoke, fire, smoke, fire. When, when is another time you heard those things show up in Scripture? Smoke and fire. Exodus, right? The, the whole entire people, as they're led out of captivity, the sign that they're being guided by the Spirit is the pillar of cloud, the pillar of smoke during the day, and the pillar of fire by night. Our God shows up, and the reason that these two things show up, and Abraham is getting the vision of them, because if God himself, the Spirit defined by fire and smoke, if he shows up and walks through, Moses is, or not Moses, Abraham is just disintegrated because he's standing in the presence of the Holy Righteous God. So God shows him this in a vision, and it's symbolic of the Spirit of the Lord coming down amongst men. Now, this smoking pot and this flaming torch, it is what goes between these two animals. Well, you need to understand here. Track with me. I'm sorry to get in the details. When you would be making one of these Hebrew covenants, the person who is designing the covenant never, ever would have been the one who walked through. When you would make a covenant with somebody, the greater party would invite the lesser party into the promise and it would be the lesser party who would journey through the quote-unquote blood path which is the way of saying if you break this covenant that I'm making with you may it be to you as it is to these animals utter destruction now what God knows is if he lets Abram walk that path the covenant is what broken because Abraham can't keep this promise so what does God do to a people who can't keep their promises? He walks the blood path, foreshadowing his son to come, the Via de la Rosa, the path to the skull. God walks the path with the smoke, with the fire, saying that this is a covenant that I am making and this is a covenant that I am promising to keep forever. As long as I'm alive, this covenant exists that this land will be yours, Abraham, that this lineage will be the one through which the Lord comes. This is the promise he makes here in this passage. So pick up in verse uh, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Ephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And if you're wondering, that's the reason I went to Bible college, so I can figure out how to pronounce those names. Um, and all of that land, just so you know, all of that land is where there's a war happening right now. Okay? 
So this is what happens in 15. He gives them all this stuff. Now, again, this is where things start to get hairy. Go to chapter 16. He's given this land. He's given this covenant, blood path covenant. Chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So, again, we're getting chapters into this whole promise thing, and no people are happening in the promise. She had a female, what's that word? Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. All right? Now, we know where this is getting ready to go, but I want you to see where it went and how it got there. Okay? Because this is our problem too. When Moses, I mean, why do I keep going to Moses? When Abraham was in Egypt, was he just like the model husband? Doing everything right? No. He's a liar, coward in Egypt. She's my sister. You can have her. No big deal. And then Pharaoh undresses and like, what the? You know, <laughs> like something's wrong. And Pharaoh does the honorable, this is crazy. Pharaoh does the honorable thing. Get out of my presence. Take your wife. I'm not even going to demand that you give me back these female servants and maid servants and all the livestock that you just garnered for making this trade for your sister. And what you see is Abraham leaves Egypt, but what does he take with him? Egypt. See, our God, and this is a story of the Israelites as well. Our God has no problem getting his people out of Egypt. He has a great problem getting Egypt out of his people. And that's not on him. That's on his people who refuse, while they've been set free, to experience full freedom. We want to experience the freedom God can give us when we make a stupid mistake, but we want to continue to take the things that had the mistake happen in the first place with us. And those things, they come back to undermine God's true plan, his ultimate plan for our life. So Abraham does something stupid in Egypt, brings his stupidity from Egypt back with him into his tent, and Sarah has a weak faith moment in chapter 16. Let's look at it. Verse 2. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. Yes, that means what you think it means. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Fellas in the room, let's just make something very clear. If your wife ever comes to you and says, hey, here's the deal. I want you to sleep with this other woman. It's always a trap. It's always a bad idea, okay? Never follow through on that. No matter what she says, there's no such thing as a hall pass, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 4. And he went into Hagar. And she conceived. And when she saw, this Sarah here, when she saw that she, that's Hagar, had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. It's like the thing we want is the thing that when we get, we hate. Man, there's so much real life application in these stories. Verse five, and Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. You're right back in the garden. People making an 
egregious sin against the Father God who promised to provide everything that they needed to allow his promises to come to fruition. They circumvent his promises, try to take a shortcut to his promises, and then once those promises come to fruition, the dumb promises, they're both sitting there going, it's your fault, it's your fault. Well, you, she's your servant, you can do with her what you want to do with her. It's the garden all over again. And for, before you fellows in the room go, well, see, man, Eve, if you had just not eaten that thing, and then you're mean to tell me, Trent, I know where this verse is going. You're going to tell me that through um, Hagar, Ishmael was born, and that became the whole Islam race. And, and you're going to tell me that through Isaac, that's where all the Israel nation came, and that's where Jesus came, and the war between Christians and Muslims and all that type of stuff. That's coming because Sarah had this really stupid idea one day. Well, kind of. But hear me on this. Our job as husbands, this is a side note in the story, our jobs as husbands is to help our wives when their faith is weak, not perpetrate the weakness for our own pleasure. This is why the voice of God has got to be the most listened to voice in our life. Because sometimes, fellas, and don't amen this, your wife will have a stupid idea. And you have to have heard from God have enough backbone to go, that's not what God's told me. No, ma'am. In the same way that Adam should have said, no, ma'am, in the garden. Abraham should have said, no, ma'am, in the bedroom. And things would have been very different. This is why I said last week, the reason God doesn't reveal all of his plan to you is because if you knew the plan, you'd mess it up. That's just here. That's all we see. It happens over and over and over again. Let's keep going. Let's go to verse 7. Oh, chapter 16 still. The angel of the Lord found her. This is um, Hagar, and she's fled out. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? He said, I, she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for, mul they, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her, this is key, this is biblical prophecy coming to fruition. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael. That means the Lord hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man with his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. This is important. Keep going from here. Abraham uh, gets this covenant. Uh, continue, God continues to show up and give him this covenant promise. Both Abraham and Sarai have these moments where God shows up to Abram and tells him that he's going to have a son. He passes out in this moment in laughter. And then you have Abram um, have these visitors show up and, and they tell Abram what's going to happen. Sarah overhears this. She starts laughing. They confront on this. Basically, God continues to reaffirm this promise that they are going to give birth to this child. He does it through chapter 17, through chapter 18. Abraham's got some crazy stuff going on in his life. Keep going, 19 and 20, and then meet me at verse or chapter 21. So God has continued to echo and show these promises. They're continuing to go through years without God showing up on these promises through this course of time. Remember, 
Ishmael is in the home. He has grown up. Sarah has had to sit at the breakfast table and know that her husband has slept with her servant and this child is growing up in their home. She sees him go through that process and every day that she sees Ishmael grow, she's reminded yet again of the promises of God and how they failed her in her eyes. Verse 20, or chapter 21. Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age. At the time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of the son who was born to him. From Sarah bore him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have ever said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Get a little bit of window into some family drama here as we turn into chapter 8. And the child grew. That's Isaac. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast. That's when the child comes off of breast milk. They would celebrate that. It would be a feast and a festival, trying to mark a moment in the kid's life where he was becoming less of a baby, more of a boy. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar. So she sees Ishmael on this, this day that is about whose son? Her son. Mama Bear Mode initiated right here. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had born from Abraham, laughing. Now that's a, a weak... Uh, translation there of laughing. It's, it's more of a, a mocking. It's, it's more of a, like evil-rooted mocking that is happening here in this moment. So she said to Abram, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. All right. Now, let's, let's picture this. This is, where, this is where the wickedness and the evil comes into play. It's one thing if my nine-year-old is picking on my six-year-old. It's boys being boys. You know, it's brotherly rivalry. just picking on somebody. Now, if I have an 18-year-old, 17, 18, basically grown man of war age son, and I also have a child who is just coming off of breast milk at 11, 12 However many months is appropriate. I'm not a scientist on that. I can't really exactly remember when my own kids came off. So you've got a borderline infant and a grown man. Now, that's one thing if a seven-year-old is picking on a five-year-old. Boys being boys. But when you see a grown man mocking and maliciously laughing at a baby, that is evil and that is vile. Which again... Some of those things should start to remind you of the scenes and the pictures that we've seen this week. Grown, of adult age men doing horrendous things to innocent babies. And this tension between these two brothers as Ishmael and Hagar are banished, cast out from this house as this man who was prophesied by God to be a wild donkey of a man who is at war against 
all people, for all intents and purposes, leaves their home, you see God say something odd about this child. Let's look at it. Go to verse, uh, chapter 21 still. Go to verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abram on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac, this is key, this is so key. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And again, that Hebrews just said that. This is where the nation of Israel, Jews, come from. Verse 13. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman. All right, so up until this point, we've got God saying, I've got a nation. I'm going to give a nation through you. I'm going to give a nation through your offspring, Abram. There's a nation that's going to come. And, and we know that nation to be the, the Israelite nation. We know that nation to be the one through which our King Jesus is fulfilling the true nation and the true people, which is the people of God here and right now. What God also says, now key word here, God also says, is that through the son who was born have the wicked misdeeds and lack of faith, what will there also come? A nation. And we know that nation, 2,000 years removed from this, to be the nation of Islam that traces their history and heritage back to this story where they believe fully that the child of the promise is not Isaac, but Ishmael. We'll come back to that tension. Let's go to verse, uh, chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abram and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, key there, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I, I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son all foreshadowing what the father would ultimately do to his son Jesus as he put the wood on his back and marched him up, which is exactly the same mountain here as far as biblical geography would tell us. Verse 7, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they both went together. Verse 9, and they came to the place which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on your boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So that Abraham called the place, the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, so key, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And friend, I'm here to tell you that it was on this same mountain that the temple was built. It was on the same mountain that Jesus ultimately gave his life to fulfill all of these promises that came. Now, while we, in our faith, in our tradition, we see all of those things happening there on that mountain in the year 610 AD, there's a man named Muhammad who, according to Islam's tradition, the very same mountain received prophecy, was visited by an angel. Now, we know that this is not an angel. We know from Scripture that any time any sort of being shows up and says, I'm going to reveal more to you than is already revealed in here, the Bible tells us clearly that if anything shows up to you, this is why we're not Mormon, this is why we're not Muslim, this is why we're not anything else, but, but believing Christians, if anyone were to show up to you and present to you an addition to the gospel from which you have already received, that is not a, a, a from God being, that is a demonic being adding to the gospel. So this guy, Muhammad, is visited by a demon and this demon instructs him to start a new religion. Instructs him to start a new religion where it is actually Yahweh choosing Hagar, not Sarah. That the child of promise is Ishmael, not Isaac. It takes the entire Genesis 22 storyline that Isaac was the son who was to be sacrificed and it replaces it with Ishmael. Islam takes the story and completely twists it to now say that the land belongs to Ishmael, that the lineage from which the Lord will come is Ishmael, not Isaac, which means, to fast forward to present day, which means to modern day Arabs and Palestinians that this land should be their land. And again, when God made these covenants, they were not temporary. They were covenants that exist and will go on into eternity because the lineage is covenantal lineage. And they would say, we worship our Lord, not Jesus, Allah. It is a constant war over these three things. Land, lineage, and from whose lineage has come the Lord. And the war that's happening right there, right now, is over these three things that we watch show up right here in the passages I just walked you through. So we see in our recent events, fast forwarding, the, the, the reason these are happening, the reason that there was an invasion, the reason they show up at the, the rave that the Jewish people are having there in the music festival and everything else, the reason that they go in is because they believe these three things are theirs and they don't believe that because they just want them. They believe that because they have interpreted their holy scriptures to be their truth. It's ours. Ishmael is, is the son of promise. Ishmael had 12 sons. And again, this is all counterbalanced to Isaac and him having Jacob and Jacob having the 12 tribes come through him. Everything that Jesus creates, Satan sends a counterfeit to counteract. And this is what's happening in the story. And there has been constant war over these three things. In recent events, Hamas 
has invaded and attacked Israel. Hamas are the descendants of Ishmael. Israel, those are the descendants of Isaac through his son, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, which is the Jews. Now, here's where we come into play. We read the words of Jesus, who says that he was not just taking this Jewish nation and they were going to be it. But we read and go through the book of Ephesians like we did, and we see Paul explain to us, who was a Jew, that thou, in Christ, there is no more Jew or Gentile, that we are now what in Christ? One. And we, we, are, we have revealed to us through Scripture that this God of the Jews is now expanding, flinging the gates wide open to now from the very beginning. Remember back to the Abrahamic covenant. He said, I want you to be a what to all nations. From the very beginning, God's covenant with Abraham was that he would be a blessing to all nations. That covenant is coming to fruition through Jesus that all nations, not just the Jewish nation, not just the nation of Israel, but that all nations would do that. And Jesus made that very clear, that God so loved the world, all, that he gave his only begotten son. Not one tribe, not one tongue, not one nation, but all who would be in Christ would be a part of a new kingdom, a new country. But for roughly 4,000 years, there's been a battle waging in that area, in that land. And right now, the Palestinians and the Jews are at war. The Gaza Strip is the third most populated area on earth as far as how big it is. I'll say this very clearly. Both sides, I believe, are loved by God. Both sides need Jesus. The best that we can tell via statistics of the Jews who are in that area, there's about 2% of Jews in that area of, of Israel, Gaza, whatever you want to call it. There's about 2% of the Jews that are there that are Messianic Jews that actually believe in Jesus. Along with that, and this never gets talked about, about 2% of the Palestinians actually do believe in Jesus. Now, here's what you need to understand. You have two groups of people trying to kill each other where the vast majority do not believe in Jesus. So, so we're foolish if we think that neither of them can know Jesus and there be peace. There will be no peace in Gaza, in Israel, in the Middle East at all until both bend their knee to Jesus. They've got to stop trying to kill each other and bend their knees to Jesus. That is the only hope, and that is what we pray for. The Jews do not have it right right now. If you are not right with Jesus, you do not have it right. It has to start there, or we will continue to kill people in the name of the God we have misunderstood until we understand that Jesus is the full and complete revelation of that God we say we serve. And full and complete means you don't add anything to him. So, I want to talk to you about the twofold goal that we see happening there. The twofold goal that is the goal to rule over the land and the lineage and eventually set up lordship for the nation of Islam against the kingdom of God. The goal is for rule, rule with the iron fist. The thing about Islam and how it differs from Christianity. The rule is through the Quran and Sharia law. It's not a religion of proposition that says you can choose to obey this and follow this or you cannot. It is a religion of imposition which says convert or die. There is not tolerance. There is dominance. And the goal is to rule. The goal is to bring about what they would call peace through whatever means necessary to allow a king, their king, to rise up and rule. And again, 
Biblical prophecy would point us to this being the Antichrist. Again, everything that Jesus creates, everything that he says, the enemy's goal is to counterfeit. Our God tells us that there is a day where he will come as a true ruling, reigning king, and he will set up and rule here. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is king in the nation of Islam. And their eschatology, which is a study of the end times, they would say that that will be our king, and it will not be your Jesus. I want to quote um, one of the senior Hamas officials. He's quoted recently of saying this. We believe that our prophet Muhammad, we believe what our prophet Muhammad said. Now he's going to quote from the Quran. Allah drew the end of the world together for my sake. This is what Muhammad is believing he saw Allah do for him. He drew the world together for my sake, and I saw its eastern and western ends, the dominion of my nation would reach those ends and have been drawn near me. This is where he um, branches out from quoting the Quran and now just gives his commentary. He says, The entire 510 million square kilometers will come under a system where there is no injustice, no oppression, no Zionism, no Israel. I like this part because it makes me a little bit um, fiery in my faith, a little bit more of a chip on my shoulder. He says, there'll be no Zionism, no Israel, no treacherous Christianity, no killing and crimes like those being committed against the Palestinians and against the Arabs in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and other countries. What this means is there's an active agenda to snuff out you treacherous Christians. To, to which I, ask, I look myself in the mirror and ask this question, how treacherous is your Christianity, Trent? And there's a part of me that I don't know if it's the, 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 that minor psychopath for faith that's in there that goes, all right, this is a real war. And you got a little bit, here's what, here, if we're really in spiritual warfare, you got to understand, you got to be a little bit crazy to go to war, to just sign up, to just willingly enlist, to be like, yes, this is what I want to do. And, and my question to us is if there is an a scheme of darkness and evil men per- per- perpetuated by a demonic spirit, not the Holy Spirit, that seeks to snuff out and there be a ruling world and a kingdom where there is no more treacherous Christianities. Are you ready for that? Would anybody even label your Christianity treacherous in regards to the damage it would do to their agenda? Or are you an non-issue? What this means is there is for sure, without a doubt, a spiritual war going on. Now, the Bible makes this clear is that the closer and the further you get into the culminating spiritual war, the more you will see a war that is, is, is deeply rooted in spiritual demonic forces become more and more evident. Jesus, in Matthew 24, 8, he talks about labor pains. We're beginning to talk about the end times. He mentions that in the same way, you'll be able to see the frequency of contractions for a woman going into labor. It's identifying that there is going to be this this birth, this thing is going to come to fruition. He's, He's equating it with those things. And I believe, friends, we are seeing the labor pains that prepare us for Jesus' return. And I don't believe the wise thing to do would be to stick our head in the sand 
in regards to our faith and what we say we believe in, there are really only two key timelines for us as human beings here. It is the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Those are the only two timelines that matter. You can celebrate your birthday all you want. You can celebrate all the things you want. You can have fun this Thanksgiving. But there are two dates on the great cosmic calendar that matter. It is the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. One of those has already happened. He came in humility. When he comes in the second coming, he is not coming in humility. He is coming to judge. The Bible tells us he's coming on a white horse. He's got tattoos up and down his legs of Bible verses. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. That is not a manger scene. That is a scene of someone bent on murdering anyone who is in opposition to the faith that he was murdered to institute. He's coming to judge because it is a spiritual war. Heaven and hell and your souls in the balance. Now, because I do believe it is a, a holy war, I want to take you back to something I didn't get to show you in Genesis. Because I believe what's happening in, in Israel really truly is evil. And I believe that is even fulfilling and pointing us towards the second coming. Go to Genesis chapter 6 verse 11. Genesis 6, 11. So this is when God sees what's happening on the earth, how his daughters are being taken advantage of and manipulated and evil has been done against them. And throughout the entire earth, there is nothing but wickedness and evil save Noah and his family who God has favor on. Now, verse 11 of chapter 6, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Violence. Before I tell you what that word means, I want you to understand that what is happening and has begun to happen is spiritual warfare, demonic forces, having a heyday, and weak men who refuse to surrender to God. This word Hamas in the language of Islam is a word that means zeal. The word, the, the, the group of people Hamas is a acronym that stands for something but it's based off of the word zeal. Now while it is a word in the language of Muslims, it is also a word in Hebrew. I want you to hear what that word sounds like in Hebrew. The word there in chapter 6, verse 11. I'm going to play this for you because I don't want you to take my word for it. This is, you're going to hear it first, the concordance reference. So all these Bible words, they get put in a concordance and they have a number that's attached to them so you know how to go find them. But this is what that word, violence. And again, this is God's siding for wiping out the entire world except for Noah. This is what the word violence sounds like. Strong's age 2555, Hamas. 
Hamas. There are no coincidences in the kingdom of God. And the closer we get to the return of the king to fully institute his kingdom, the more obvious these things will become. And his church has to do something with what we now know. Because there is a war going on. And it is not against flesh and blood. Hear me, it is not against flesh and blood. Do not see someone on the street and think they look a certain way and assume that they are your enemy. Do not go to an airport and see somebody in a, uh, in a head covering and go, oh, they're, the, they're one of those it's evil, wicked people. They are still a soul that has not died yet. And if I said it last week talking about us as Christians, I have to say it this week talking about Muslims. If they're not dead, then God's not done. So, quickly, and I don't have time to elaborate on this. I want to walk you through, if this is true, what should we do? First, realize you are in a spiritual war. I think I've made that very clear today. Second, understand that heroic faith has awareness, yet remains fearless. We can't just go, I don't want to know about it. I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Heroic faith actually has the awareness, yet simultaneously remains fearless. Next, choose spiritual discipline over distraction. And hear me on this. When, okay, spiritual warfare, all that's happening. We all see it, can't deny it anymore. When actual soldiers are getting ready to go to deploy, no military is stupid enough to not take them through what? Basic training. This is where we develop the discipline before we get into the battlefield. Now, I wish we could say we're not on the battlefield, but we are. But the time to develop discipline to win the war is not as bullets are flying over your head. You're tracking with me? So, so what I'm calling us to is to be people who embrace the spiritual disciplines of prayer, who embrace the spiritual disciplines of meditation, who embrace the spiritual different disciplines of being in the word, of giving generously, of living sacrificially, of gathering together collectively, that we embrace these disciplines instead of just letting our lives be distracted. That is Satan's great strategy is let me keep the sleeping giant that I believe is the church in America completely distracted on their devices so that they never ever develop the discipline to be able to combat my schemes and strategies right under their nose. So choose, choose it. And listen, that's not gonna be an easy thing to choose because nobody just wakes up and is like, you know what I wanna do? 78 push-ups this morning. It's a discipline. He, we're gonna get there in a little while. Hebrews twelve eleven. It's one of my voices, uh, the verses me and my boys have memorized. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. However, later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We need to realize that there is a tension that exists between what we know we need to do. We need to see the connection between these two things, anxiety and avoidance. Anxiety and avoidance. Hear me on this. Nothing creates anxiety. Because you could hear all this and get really nervous. Nothing creates anxiety like avoidance. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to uh, pretend like it doesn't exist, or I'm going to not do the thing, or I'm just going to whatever. The more you avoid an issue, the, this is what's counterintuitive. The more you try to avoid an issue, the more anxious about it you will become. But here's the good news. 
to the anxiety that you feel, probably around all this. There is an antidote, and that antidote, I believe, and this is going to sound controversial. It's not me saying you are saved by works. I believe some of the antidote to anxiety is action because I'm refusing to avoid what's really going on, but I'm moving forward with action. I heard this quote this week I want to share with you around the same idea. Discomfort is the thing I am most desperate to avoid, yet if I have any hope to grow, it is the thing I most desperately need. Discomfort is the thing I am most desperate to avoid, yet if I have any hope to grow, it is the thing I desperately need. So my call, plea, urging with you is move forward towards discomfort. The place I would love for you to be uncomfortable the most is here and sharing your faith with urgency. If, if, if we are heading towards a place where we're getting inching closer and closer towards the second coming of Christ, what that means is there is going to come this time where no one can return to Jesus. No one can surrender their life to Jesus. And so we owe it to the people who do not yet have faith in Jesus to share and to reveal our faith to them, to show them that there is a way, there is a hope to not just sit back and wait for people to ask us. And and again, I don't know what this looks like in your life. It could be as simple as inviting people to church. It could be as simple as inviting someone over to your house. And listen, you don't have to have the inner workings of all the trouble that's happening in the Middle East and all the biblical Bible verses that connect to it. Here's the only thing that you need to know. Here's what Jesus did for me. And I believe he can do this for you. Ask him a question. I've told you this before, as far as strategy goes, you want to be for sure to get an invitation for someone, from someone to come and share your faith, tell them this. Hey, I have something going on in my life that I want to share with you. Would you be willing to meet with me? Because they're going to go, ooh, I wonder what's going on. Hey, something happened in my past and I want to share it with you. They're going to go, ooh, I'm going to get some details. And then you show up and you begin to tell them how Jesus saved your life, how you were blind, but now you see, how you were lost, but now you're found. And you tell them those things and you pray for them and you hope for them and you beg God to open the doors so that they can see him for who he really is. Last thing, I'll end with this. We all want peace. But, but here's, here, here's what I'm... When, when, when we as Americans gather together in rooms like this and go, man, we're just praying for peace... Let's be honest. What you're really praying for is just that people would stop fighting. There's a whole different ballgame between a married couple stopping fighting and a marriage couple experiencing peace. In the same way, there's a whole different ballgame between uh, Israelites and Palestinians stopping fighting and there actually being peace. And the point I'm trying to make in this is until you know Jesus, there will be no peace. So what we pray for is biblical peace, which is a full awareness of who Jesus is, experiencing him as our peace. And if you don't have that peace today, if you hear all this and you're just more nervous and more nervous and more nervous, you may not know Jesus. And I want to invite you into to knowing him, to seeing him, to experiencing him. If you do know Jesus here in this room, I want to invite you into communion, a time where that knowledge gets held in our hands and we ingest the one who sacrificed this life for us so that we can have eternal life in him. Today, the way we're going to end is not by standing and seeing and proclaiming a song. We're going to end with just a special moment of prayer, prayer of repentance, prayer of, uh, for, for real peace, for reconciliation, and prayer for Jesus to return, to come quickly. And I pray that as you sit here today, you would know that 
He is not slow as some count slowness, as the Bible would say, but he is being patient. He has been patient with you. He's been patient with me, and he is being patient with those around you who do not know him, but there will come a time where his patience will run out, and I want us to do what we need to do as a church. In the days, the weeks, the months, or the seconds before that happens. Let's pray. Pray and receive communion, and then just enter into a time of prayer, whatever God lays in your heart. Pray for our church. Pray for this country. And pray for peace. Jesus, thank you for giving your body broken and your blood poured out for us. As we commune with you, turn our hearts to you, the Prince of Peace. And let us know that we have to make war against our flesh for that peace to come out of our life.